Hear the word of the Lord. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. It's evidence that you have spoken to us. You reveal yourself in your word. And we are here to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak. We pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to, to see. We pray that what we see would be beautiful. And even where we struggle to understand, would you help us to trust? Father, we ask that you would empower us to not merely be hearers of this word, but, but empower us to be doers of this word as well. We pray that whatever we need this morning, even if it's not what we want, we pray that you would give it. If we need encouragement, we pray that you would give it. If, if we need to be convicted, would you convict us? If we need to be challenged, would you challenge us? Would, would you provide for us through your word as only you can? We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. We are in Daniel 9. We have been walking through Daniel since August, or really the beginning of September. We will be in Daniel until our Advent series in December. And when we began uh, planning this Daniel series, I had this passage, uh, it was looming over me. It's been looming for a while now. I, I knew it would be coming. I, I even, you notice, I even tried to put it off a week, right? Like we've been walking through entire chapters and then for Daniel 9, I'm like, no, we got to break this thing up. Um, I, I do approach this passage with much trepidation, with, with much trembling. It, it is one of the most difficult passages in Daniel and some would say it's one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. However, 
We believe that all of God's word is profitable to us and for us. And so our practice here at Trace Crossing is to walk through Bible books verse by verse, not avoiding a single one along the way. And so we're not avoiding this passage at all. Instead, we are approaching it with humility, but with joy and anticipation of how the Lord is going to speak. I want to begin uh, because in Daniel 9, just the context of it, Daniel 9, 1 through 19 is largely a prayer from Daniel. It's, it's the the introduction to his prayer, but then it's, it's a prayer, the, the majority of Daniel 9. And it's, it's during that prayer that he receives this vision from Gabriel. He receives this word from an angel of the Lord. And Daniel is asking for something. And what the Lord gives is far more than what Daniel asked for. And have you ever experienced that before, where you ask for something and then the answer is far more than what you asked for? Sometimes that has negative connotations and sometimes that has positive connotations. I always think of this when I talk to my mentors. It, it almost happens every single time. And, and I don't call my mentors that frequently, but when I do, when I call them, there's a, a question that I have, a situation that's before me or a decision that's before me, I'll call them and I'll ask a specific question. And, you know, I don't know if, if you're like me at all, but whenever I ask questions, I almost have expected answers because I, I sort of know what I want to do or what I think is the right thing to do. I'm just not sure. And so I have an expectation of how the answer is going to come or what it's going to be. When I ask my mentors a question, they'll typically, sometimes they even respond with a question and it totally changes my, my you know, framework of thinking. It sends me down a different path. And so I'm asking for them to give me advice, and they typically give me far more than what I've asked for. Daniel has asked for something very clearly in his prayer in Daniel 9, and and the Lord's answer to him in verses 24 through 27 is far more than what Daniel could have asked for, would have even known to ask for, and far more than he could have ever imagined. We're going to break down this passage by looking at the two sections, first verses 20 through 23, and then verses 24 through 27, and we'll see what the Lord does with it, okay? So let's start with verses 20 through 23. The first thing that we see happen in Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is Gabriel brings an answer to Daniel's prayer. So Daniel's been praying, and if you remember Daniel's prayer, and you remember the content of it, he's essentially asking for two things. He, he first is confessing sin. He's being brutally honest about who God is and who the people are. He's talking about God's holiness, and he's talking about his people's uh, failure to meet God's standard. He's confessing their unrighteousness and their unfaithfulness in light of God's purity and holiness and, and steadfast love to his covenant people. It's the people who have broken the covenant with their God, and it's the very reason that they are in exile. The very reason that Daniel is praying this prayer in Babylon instead of Jerusalem is because of the failure of the people to keep the covenant. They have not kept the covenant with the Lord their God. They have not kept the law, and and the consequence of that was separation from the land and separation from God, and yet God is still in Babylon. It's something that we're learning here. It's something that Daniel learns, and it's something that the covenant people of Israel will will learn, that even as Daniel and some of his friends and some of the other uh, Judeans are removed from Jerusalem, Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, the Lord's presence is in Babylon as well. However, there is that separation, and Daniel feels it, and he confesses. And what led him to confess that? If you were here with us last week, we were, we were looking, and, and it was Daniel reading in the prophecy of Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah, which, which would have only been written a few years before Daniel you know, would have read it. And so he, he reads about the, the exile, that the exile will end in 70 years, that the people of God will be exiled in Babylon for 70 years. And as Daniel's reading this, he has been in Babylon for 66 years. And so, so Daniel recognizes the end is near. The end is near. And he has this hope 
He prays toward Jerusalem three times a day, we learned in Daniel 6, hoping, hoping for the end of the exile and for the return to Jerusalem because Daniel knows that along with the return to Jerusalem comes the restoration of the people to the Lord, comes the restoration of the covenant, and comes the forgiveness of sins. So Daniel, in his prayer, if you remember, he's confessing sin, and then he's begging for mercy. He's begging for God to forgive. He's begging for God to restore. And he sees that in connection with this 70 years of exile that was prophesied. He sees this in connection with our forgiveness, our restoration is going to be evidenced by our return to Jerusalem. So Lord, would you please be merciful to us and end this exile. Forgive us of our sins and restore us and restore us to your holy land, your holy city. And so as he's praying, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So as Daniel is praying, this angel Gabriel that we met in chapter 8 and that is likely there in chapter 7 comes to him once again. And he brings an answer from the Lord. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh Daniel, I have come now, or I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Gabriel arrives to Daniel with an answer from the Lord. This isn't just Gabriel's opinion. A word went out. As Daniel was confessing sin and as Daniel was begging for mercy, a word went out from the Lord and Gabriel is here to tell him what that word is. And so Gabriel's arrival, his presence there and his conversation with Daniel, it, it means three things. First, you remember at the end of Daniel's prayer what he begged three times for the Lord to hear his prayer, for the Lord to listen, for the, for the Lord to incline his ear to the prayers of his uh, servant? Well, Gabriel's presence here is evidence that God heard Daniel's prayer. He heard Daniel's prayer. He heard his plea. But, but it also shows us that God answered Daniel's prayer. So God heard the prayer, but God was also faithful to give an answer to the prayer. He answers the prayer. And then both of those, though, are evidence of what's so striking here. God loves Daniel. God loves Daniel. You see, God listened to Daniel's prayer and God answered Daniel's prayer and it's evidence of the fact that Daniel is greatly loved. Gabriel tells him, when, when the pleas of mercy came to the Lord, a word went out and he says, I've come to tell it to you because you are greatly loved. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. If you are a child of the living God, you are a child who is loved. You are loved. When, when you pray to the Lord and you have this relationship with him and he answers your prayers, that's one more evidence of God's love for you. Can we go home now? <laughs> can, we, can we end there? That's the word. That's the word. Rory, come on up, man. We got, we got you know, another song. You can just lead us through another set. That was great. What a beautiful name it is. It was awesome, man. Let's do that again. Because now we turn to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Okay? Um, yeah, as I said, these verses are some of the most difficult to interpret in the entire book. I've read 
so many commentaries this week that my head is spinning. Um, commentators and scholars, some of my theological heroes, some of my, my own professors who I deeply respect, they disagree strongly with one another um, about the interpretation of these verses. In fact, the only thing that I found that the commentators and the scholars and the theologians could agree on is how difficult and challenging these verses are to interpret. That's that, they, they all agreed on that. I mean, they would all, at the beginning of their, con- you know, these verses, they're so difficult, they're so confusing, they're so challenging, and that was really the only thing they could agree on. And I've noticed that in my study this week, and Erica can attest to this, but throughout the week as I would come back and report what I was thinking about it, I disagreed with myself almost on a daily basis on what these, what these verses mean. And, and even as late as last night, I was just looking at it, and I just had to be honest with myself, and I'm like, I'm not sure what this means, you know? Because at first glance, when you first read it, if this is the first time you ever heard this, and you, you're a Christian or you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably thought of Jesus, right? Because you heard the, uh, the anointed one. The anointed one will be cut off, and it, and it you know, makes you think of Jesus. And, and so on the surface, it seems really clear, but the more you dig into it and the more you read it, the more confusing it can get. It, it makes me think of the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. There's this, there's this line in it where it says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. And so what, it, what it's saying is that not all Scripture is equally clear. That there are some places in Scripture that are more confusing than others, but we should not fret because there is enough that is clear in Scripture for us to be saved from our sin and for us to grow in godliness. However, we do approach a passage that is one of those less than clear passages. But something else we need to remember here, lest we give up before we start, I'm afraid I'm encouraging that, um, God is not playing hide-and-seek in this passage, Okay? He's not playing hide-and-seek. Daniel, if you notice, if you notice, the last thing that Daniel is is told at the end of verse 23 before the vision begins is, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God has revealed himself, his plan for his people, and the fulfillment of that plan in these verses. However, we can't admit from the beginning they seem confusing, obscure, obscure, and they're definitely challenging to understand. So just a question for you. What do you do with a passage like this? What, what do you do when you're in your, in your Bible study or we're here as a congregation or I'm in a sermon? What you do is you just stall and you keep talking about other things so that you don't have to preach it. And then you look at your clock and you say, oh, we'll pick it up some other time. That's what I'm trying to do. No, but, but what do we do? How, how do we approach a text like this? I, I have three suggestions for us. This is, this is really um, what, what I've tried to do this week. The first is, you have to interpret a difficult, confusing passage according to its genre. Okay, you have to keep the genre in mind. We talked about that when we began Daniel 7. We said we're entering into an apocalyptic section of Scripture, and we're still in it, right? We're still in an apocalyptic section of Scripture, and so this is apocalyptic. That helps us. It helps us as we start considering what in the world is a week here, 70 weeks. What, what's, what's being referred to here? Um, okay, so you interpret according to genre. You also interpret according to context, 
Okay, the context is so crucial and so important. We've already kind of set the stage that this is set in the context of Daniel's prayer, and it's an answer to Daniel's prayer. We also have the context of the rest of the book of Daniel, and so that's kind of how we start. We start with Daniel 9, and then we look at the rest of Daniel, and how does this passage fit within the the book of Daniel as a whole? And then we have the Old Testament, and then we have the whole Bible. And so we consider the context with which this passage finds itself, okay? And, And then finally, so we interpret according to genre and according to context, And then finally, this is so important, and so many people miss this, and I used to miss this so often. You interpret what's confusing in light of what's clear, not the other way around. Okay, you interpret what's confusing in light of what's clear. And there is a clear portion of this passage in verse 24. There's a clear section here. And so we we start with what's clear, and then we look at what's confusing and try to understand it in light of what's clear. Now, as we begin to discuss the 70 weeks, some of you, like I said, you're totally unfamiliar. Some of you have, you know, like three or four charts at home of the 70 weeks, and you're like, oh, I'm ready for this one. Let's see what he's got. Um, But as we begin to discuss the 70 weeks, I just want to say from the beginning, all right, this is so everyone can hear it's on the live stream, so it's going to be saved forever. I reserve the right to change my mind about this passage in the future, Okay. (laughs) Um, so maybe this afternoon, after I preach it, and this afternoon, I, I can change my mind on this, all right? Um, don't hold me to what I, what I say today. Um, and something else for you to remember, it's the Word of God that's infallible, okay? The, the Word of God that's inherently true, not the interpretation of the preacher, okay? My interpretation can be wrong, and when my interpretation is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, guess who's wrong? I'm wrong. Okay, and I will readily admit that. So I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, my interpretation of these verses will surely annoy some of you. Some of you are going to be annoyed with what I say. Some of you are probably going to be confused by what I say. However, I do hope that many of us will find encouragement in the sovereign plan of God to save sinners, if, if we can find encouragement in nothing else, at least that. So now, let's turn to them. The answer to Daniel's prayer. God answers Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and mercy and restoration with this mysterious decree of 70 weeks, which unfolds God's purpose to save his people and the fulfillment of that purpose. And so that's, that's how we're going to attack this, okay? So he answers the prayer with a mysterious decree of 70 weeks, and the 70 weeks unfolds God's purpose to save his people and the fulfillment of that purpose. So let's start with just 70 weeks, okay? Verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people. We can't even get past the first two, without, the first two words there without stopping. So 70 weeks. Do you see a footnote? You guys have a footnote in your Bible there? Okay, go down to that footnote. What does it say? Or sevens, right? Okay, 70 weeks. That's, that's how they chose to interpret it. If you have an NIV, I think it actually says sevens. If you have an NIV. Yeah, there's, there's my NIV guy right here. He's nodding his head. Yeah, sevens, okay? That's the literal translation here. So 70 sevens. And I, I don't know, you guys are maybe more advanced than me, but I look at that and I'm like, what's a seven? Okay, what is a seven? Uh, Seven what? Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are decreed about your people. I would love to walk you through the litany of options for interpreting this passage, but we we literally do not have time to do that. Um, But it's worth a question. What is a seven? Some would say that the seven is representative of weeks of years. 
Okay, and if you want the background for that, turn to Leviticus 25. Okay, you can go to Leviticus 25 and there's the background for why they say that. But even beyond that, we have the question of, if it's talking about years, if it's talking about 77s or 490 years, which is what it would come to, um, are they literal years? So, so is, is God saying in 490 years something's going to happen? I'm decreeing 490 years. Is it, is it literal, a literal time frame or, or is it a symbolic time frame? Um, and again, most of, a lot of guys that I deeply trust, I actually have two professors who they're, they're on the same page on most everything except for this issue. They are butting heads big time on it. You know, one of them says it's literal, one of them says it's symbolic. Um, I tend, I tend to lean that this is referring to a period of time, but not specifically a literal 490 years. The problem, the problem with doing that is the math just doesn't work out well enough for me. Okay, as we're going to walk through this, the math just doesn't work out. When we were in Daniel 8, you remember Daniel 8? There were numbers there too, and I argued that it, w- it should probably be interpreted more literally. But it's because the numbers are a little more favorably. They work out a little bit better. They seem to fit well. And I, I wasn't convinced this week that the numbers fit well, so my only option then was to see it a little more symbolically. At minimum, it's got to be viewed symbolically because 70 weeks, it's not weeks, you know? It has to be viewed in some way. So you're doing some kind of symbolic work no matter how you do it. Uh, however, the 77s, I'm going to say, is referring to a a period of time, not specifying like exact years, but a period of time. So 70 weeks, 70 weeks. God answers Daniel's prayer for forgiveness, mercy, and restoration with this mysterious decree of 70 weeks, which does two things, unfolds God's purpose to save his people, and it unfolds the fulfillment of that purpose. Let's start with the purposes, okay? The purposes of the 70 weeks. The the angel Gabriel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people, and your holy city with six purposes. Okay, the rest of verse 24. Six purposes. Here they are. First, to finish the transgression. So within this 70 weeks, within this frame of time, the transgression will be finished. Second, to put an end to sin. Third, to atone for iniquity. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, to seal both vision and profit. Sixth, to anoint a most holy place. Or another way to interpret that is, or translate that could just as easily say to anoint a most holy person or a most holy one. There, there are options there. It, just, it, it could, be, could be either way. So, so to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place or a holy one. So God purposes to forgive his people's sin and to eliminate his people's sin altogether. This sounds like an answer to Daniel's prayer right? Daniel's praying for the forgiveness of his people's sin, and God says that this 70 weeks is decreed, and within that time frame, your sin will be forgiven. But not only will it be forgiven, it will be finally and fully eliminated. We will do away with sin. But there's another side to that, because God also purposes to establish a kingdom, and this is within the context of Daniel. You go back to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, where we have these visions of, and Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of this kingdom of God that's going to usher in, and it's going to overcome, and it's going to be greater, and it's going to be everlasting, unlike the kingdoms of this world. And, And 
the Lord gives this answer to Daniel and he says that in this kingdom will be everlasting righteousness where vision and prophet will be sealed and where an, a, a holy place or a holy one will be anointed. So God purposes to establish a kingdom, to establish a new covenant, and to establish a new creation. God says, this is what I'm going to do. The answer to Daniel's prayer for forgiveness, forgiveness is going to come through these six things happening. This is my purpose. And then, starting in verse 25, he unfolds the fulfillment of that purpose. Okay, so, so if, if verse 24 is the what, what God's going to do, verses 25 through 27 give an answer to the when and the how. When and the how. So God's going to forgive his people. God's going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to atone for iniquity. And here's how he's going to do it. And here's when he's going to do it. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then if you have an ESV, and I'm preaching from the ESV, and I almost didn't preach from the ESV this morning because I don't like the ESV's translation of this. Um, if you notice there, there's a period in the ESV, and then the next, the next word is then. The, the word then is added because it just helps it, makes, helps it make sense uh, contextually. Uh, however, I don't think that's the best way to phrase this. Just in my study, we don't, we don't have time to get into why. Um, see me later if, if you need that. But I actually think that it could better be translated, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And I think in the NIV it says that. I know in the NASB it says that. Yeah, he's over there. So like, NIV, I've been telling you, switch over. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll give you this one, man. Like, it's, it's just better. It's just better in the NIV. Um, but maybe it's because I've chosen to interpret it a certain way, and so I don't know which one's driving which. Um, but I do think it's better to see it as seven weeks and 62 weeks, a 69-week period divided into two sections, seven and 62. But anyway, we'll keep reading. For 62 weeks, it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So something that was really encouraging, like you're reading verse 24 and you're like, yes, yes, I'm tracking with you. I know what this is pointing to. It's like verse 25 to 27, it's like a, you know, swerve off into this like, you know, back road and you're, now you're on this country road and it's just gravel and you're trying to figure, I, I don't know. Um, but what, what I can say, and maybe this will help you, I don't know. If you could think of it as this is God's program to save sinners, okay? This is God's program. There are three parts to it that, that he unfolds in terms of timing and in terms of how he's going to do it. Uh, three parts. First, the first step in it is the temple in Jerusalem will be restored. Okay, so this is what we see. The temple in Jerusalem will be restored. Second part in, the, in this plan, the Messiah will come. The Messiah will come. And this is God's answer again to, to Daniel's prayer. The temple in Jerusalem will be restored first. Then the Messiah will come. And the third step in the plan, in the program, the temple will be destroyed. Which 
And again, here's my interpretation coming in. Do with it as you may. Uh, uh, foreshadowing the Antichrist and the return of the Messiah. So three parts. Three parts. Let's hit them again. First, the temple in Jerusalem will be restored. Second, the Messiah will come. Third, the temple will be destroyed. And I believe that the words there in verses 26 and 27 are foreshadowing at bare minimum the Antichrist and the return of the Messiah. So if you noticed, if you noticed as we read verses 25 through 27, uh, Gabriel takes the 70 weeks and he breaks them down. Okay, he, he creates divisions within the 70 weeks. And so let's, let's do that together here. So get your calculator out and um, your uh, pen. And I know Paige is over here just loving it. She's like, yes, finally some math in this place. Um, so the first breakdown is the first 69 weeks. Okay, you have the first 69 weeks and then you have the 70th week, if you want to think of it in big terms. But the 69 weeks are divided into two sections, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what we're told here is from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So here's my interpretation of how this is going to work out. I, w- you know, I would have gotten a chart out, but then you would have thought I went you know, fundamentalist or you know, dispensational or whatever. Um, so, um, <laughs> but a visual may be helpful here. Uh, the seven weeks, the seven weeks, and again, again, I'm not thinking in terms of number, okay? I'm not, I'm not thinking in terms of numbers. I'm thinking in terms of symbolic time periods, specific frames of time. The seven weeks refers from the time Cyrus gives a decree for the people of Judah, of Israel, to return to the land to rebuild the temple, which, where it says, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So from that time, I believe the seven-week time frame is referring from that time until the temple is rebuilt. Because what do you see, what do you see in verse 25? Um, uh, where is it? Yeah, 25. Wait. Yeah, 25. Yeah, so um, from, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there should be seven weeks. And then, so here it says, uh, in the ESV, this is why it's confusing to me, why it, why it puts that period there. But if it said there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then there's a period, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So the seven weeks references the time between Cyrus's decree and Nehemiah's time when the temple is rebuilt. Okay, and then the 62-week time period, or yeah, the 62-week time period is from that point when the temple is finally rebuilt, where you, you have this language of restoration, where it says it will be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. I, I, I believe this is my interpretation that it's from the time of Nehemiah, from the time the temple is rebuilt until the coming of the Anointed One, until the birth of Jesus, and the reference to a troubled time could possibly be referring especially the persecution of the Jews under Antiochus, which we talked about in, in Daniel chapter 8. Um, so, so seven weeks from the time of the decree of Cyrus for the Jews to return to the promised land until the temple is rebuilt, 62 weeks from the time the temple is rebuilt until the coming of Jesus. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think. Yeah, that's, my, that's, that's where I land. That's where I land today. Um, so that's, that's the first 69 weeks of this. The 70th week. So, so here, here's further breakdown. The 70th week, which is wild, okay? It is, it is crazy, this, this last week. 
What we read in verse 26. And after the 62 weeks plus seven, right? Because it referenced the seven. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week. And this is referencing the same week, okay? It's not something extra here. Verses 26 and 27 need to be read in parallel, in tandem. Um, For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So again, what's really clear to me in this section is that an anointed one will be cut off is in reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. The Messiah will die. The, the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to be cut off. And we, we have the context of Isaiah, cut off from the land of the living. So, so I think this is clearly in reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. The second thing that we're told here is that the city, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. I see this in two ways. First, through the work of Jesus on the cross, when, when the anointed one is cut off, the sacrificial system is fulfilled. Its purpose is fulfilled and it's ended. So, so Jesus, in one sense, destroys, destroys the sacrificial system. If you look in verse 27, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So in one sense, it's the Messiah himself, it's the anointed one himself, it's the, the prince himself who is putting an end to the sacrificial system by being cut off from the land of the living. He is the reality that the shadow of we read in Hebrews, the shadow of the sacrificial system was, was pointing to. Um, however, however, the description, the description, look at the description in verse 26. So we have that the city is going to be destroyed, the sanctuary is going to be destroyed, and then it says, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So if you think of flood, you're probably thinking of water, you're thinking of an actual flood that's coming through. It's more likely in this context, in apocalyptic literature, referring to an army, referring, referring to war, referring to an army coming in, that it will be flooded with soldiers who will, who will destroy the temple and who will destroy the city. So the language reflects the destruction of the temple in AD 70. In AD 70, you know, uh, years after, some years after Jesus uh, was uh, crucified and resurrected and ascended, um, the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. He was putting out, there was a revolt from the Jews, and, and Titus uh, destroyed the temple in AD 70, which Jesus refers to multiple times throughout his teaching ministry. And then later, Jerusalem is conquered. Jerusalem is conquered in AD 135. And so there's, there's enough language here that seems to reference this is going to happen during this time frame. The temple's going to be destroyed. The city is going to be overcome. And, and we know that in history, those things happened in AD 70 and AD 135. However, also, if you notice in verse 26, it says its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. That could be referring just to that time frame right? Just until the end of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city, there will be war. However, there is enough here to to see, especially in verse 27, that there could be some foreshadowing to the end, to the end, to, to the time of the Antichrist, to the persecution of the church. 
Um, We see this further with desolation continuing, and it says, until the desolator is judged. I think this can refer to a couple things here. At minimum, it refers to the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, and we saw that in chapter 2, and we saw that in chapter 7 of Daniel, but the Roman Empire falls, the desolator is judged. However, once again, there's a little bit of foreshadowing here as it points forward to the return of Christ who will judge the Antichrist, who will judge all of his enemies and conquer them all. What can we make of this? Maybe a better question, what could Daniel have made of this? We can start there and then maybe draw some conclusions for ourselves. So if we could, if we could go back, Daniel has asked for God to forgive his people and to show them mercy. He asks a really clear prayer, and then Daniel, or then the Lord gives him a confusing answer, it seems. But Daniel's also asked to consider the word. Consider the word and understand. What could Daniel have been considering, and what could he have understood? Daniel asks for mercy, and he asks for God to forgive his people, and in his mind, he sees this happening through a fulfillment of God's promise in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 to bring his people back from exile after 70 years. That's what's in Daniel's mind. Forgiveness and restoration and mercy happens with the end of the exile and the restoration of the city and the, and the restoration of the covenant in Jerusalem. That's what Daniel's hoping for. That's the context that he has. For Daniel, forgiveness and restoration of the covenant is found in the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple. And that's as far as his hopes go. That's as far as his mind goes with it. But God's plan to forgive and restore his people is far grander than Daniel could have ever imagined. So if you notice this, God answers Daniel's hope for 70 years with 77s. It's almost like he's playing on it. There there, there are 70 years, 70 years, the 70 years is about to come up and we're about to be restored and we're about to be forgiven and we're about to take back the land. And, And the Lord says, no, the fulfillment of what you're hoping for isn't gonna happen for 77s. It's, it's down the road. It's in the future. My plan is much grander, much greater than what you're even asking for. God answers Daniel's prayer by telling him he is going to forgive his people, but he's going to do much more than that. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness. But, and this is what Daniel was missing, God's plan isn't dependent on the physical temple or on the city of Jerusalem. His plan to restore his people isn't dependent on the temple or the city. God's plan is dependent on the coming of an anointed one, on the coming of the Prince of Peace, who will come to save his people by suffering spiritual exile by being cut off. The forgiveness of God's people and their restoration is not found in the restoration of the temple. It's found in the coming of Jesus. That's where their hope is found. That's where forgiveness is found. That's where restoration is found. So here's Daniel's understanding. Daniel's understanding of this word that he's asked to consider. He could not have accounted for specific time frames like all the commentators do today. Okay, he couldn't have done that. We have the benefit of being able to look back, but he, he can't look forward and know what's going to come specifically. All Daniel could have understood is that at some time in the future, the following will happen. Here's what's going to happen. The temple in Jerusalem will be restored. The end of verse 25. It's, it's going to be restored. Okay? An anointed one's going to come. 
a Messiah, a Messiah who is also a prince, a leader, a ruler. He will come, and that Messiah will be cut off. He will die. And then this probably surprised Daniel more than anything else because he probably had hope for a Davidic king to come, and he probably had hope for the Messiah to come. But can you imagine the surprise in Daniel when he also learns that not only will the Messiah come and the Messiah be cut off, but the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. No more temple. No more temple. No more Jerusalem as it once was. The Messiah will come and he will fulfill what the temple and what Jerusalem and what the sacrificial system always pointed toward. When Jesus comes, there's no more need for the temple. When the Messiah comes, there's no more need for a centralized location for God's worship. It's all fixated and found in him. And and all of this, all of this is to accomplish the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of a new covenant. So for the Lord to give Daniel this answer, he's almost correcting Daniel's perspective. He says, you're asking for the right things, but you're looking for them in the wrong place. You're asking for the right things, but you're looking for them in the restoration of the temple and the restoration of Jerusalem and our covenant relationship. But I'm up to something much bigger than that, the Lord says. I am going to forgive your sins, but it doesn't depend on that temple. And it doesn't depend on that city. It depends on the Messiah coming and being cut off for the forgiveness of sins. Two takeaways for us. Two takeaways. The first, what Daniel 9, 20 through 27 tells us. It confuses us first, but after we work through it a little bit, we can take away, at least, at minimum, God fulfills all of his purposes. God fulfills all of his purposes according to his wisdom and his timeline. So he doesn't do it according to our wisdom, and he doesn't do it according to our timeline. He does it according to his, but make no mistake, God fulfills all of his promises. He fulfills all of his purposes. Don't you love that? Don't you love that it doesn't end with verse 24? That it's not, it's not this empty promise. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. He gives Daniel, even though it's confusing and hard to understand, he gives Daniel clarity. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's when it's going to happen. Sometime in the future, these things are going to happen and it's going to accomplish not only the forgiveness of sin, but the elimination of sin altogether. Not only the forgiveness and elimination of sin, but the ushering in of eternal righteousness where that covenant that we read about in Hebrews that's referring back to Jeremiah 31 will be a reality that we walk in every single day. So as we wait for the end, as we wait for the end, which we've seen through Daniel, will be marked in one way or another with trouble and with pain and with suffering. As we wait for the end, though, we wait with hope. We wait with hope. We have the assurance that God will complete the work he began. He will complete the work he began. Jesus has come to atone for our sin. We confess it and we sing about it. We we, we sing about what Daniel hears here because it's happened. In the fullness of time, God did send his Messiah to be cut off from the land of the living. And he did usher in this kingdom of righteousness in which we walk and are citizens of. We can be certain then that he will come again. 
to put an eternal end to sin and to consummate his eternal kingdom of righteousness. God fulfills all of his purposes according to his wisdom in his timeline. Second takeaway, and this was the most important for me to see. God deals with sin in one way. God deals with sin in the person and work of Jesus alone. God deals with sin in the person and work of Jesus alone. And what, what this passage shows us, that when you look back at the law, and he's giving all of these regulations for how he is to be worshipped and how sacrifices are supposed to happen, what you realize in this passage is all of that work, all of those laws, that entire sacrificial system, the temple, and all of the specifics and how it was supposed to be designed, the whole point of it is to point to Jesus who is the word who became flesh, who is the word who tabernacled with his people, who is himself the high priest who offers himself on the altar of God for the forgiveness of our sins, to atone for our sins, to bear the wrath of God on our sins. God deals with sin in the person and work of Jesus alone. There is no other way for you or for me or for anyone in our city or the nations to be saved it is by the name and the work and the person of Jesus alone that a person can be saved from their sin. That is our confession. That is our lifeblood. But that is also our mission. Consider that for a moment. Consider that belief that you have, because I'm sure some of you, are, hopefully all of you, are agreeing with me that Jesus is the only way. If Jesus is the only way and you know him and, and you know this gospel message, how can we stay silent about it? How can we not go to the nations and go to our neighbors and go in our city with the gospel? Because there is no other way for sin to be atoned for. There is no other way for sin to be eliminated. There is no other way for righteousness to be ushered into this world forever, only through Jesus. With the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of Jesus, we learn that the temple and the sacrifices were mere shadows. Jesus is the reality of sin's forgiveness. And so, if, if you're a believer in this room, here's the encouraging thing. If you deal with guilt, you can be assured that your sins are fully forgiven. Not because you have confessed enough. Not because you've offset it with good deeds. But because a man named Jesus was born of a virgin. And he lived a sinless life. And he was crucified on a Roman cross. And then three days later he rose from the dead. Because that happened in history. Because the Messiah was cut off. The Lord tells Daniel and he's telling you, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven simply by receiving this gift of grace by faith. So I would encourage you this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus or you're considering these things for the first time, please, please see me after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk with you about what it looks like to have saving faith in Jesus. And, but no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, know that God deals with sin in this way. 
He's a holy God. Make no mistake, Daniel confessed that earlier in his prayer in Daniel 9. He's a holy God, but he is also kind, and he is also good, and he provides for our sin through Jesus so that we can be reconciled to him and live in this eternal kingdom of righteousness forever.